We have plans to make the audio much better in the second episode, so please bear with us while we work through some growing pains. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Abby, a lecturer in English literature at Aston University in Birmingham, England. Hi, I'm Daniel. I recently obtained a PhD in 19th century literature. And uh, we were opening this podcast called Save Me From My Shelf because our, our students, we, we teach together quite a bit, and our students asked us sort of repeatedly when we were starting a podcast. And the answer was never, friend. And one of the things that our students report very frequently in their first year is that they're, they're a little nervous dealing with some of the greater works of, you know, the, the canonical works of literature. And they said that they found it a lot more comforting when academics were kind of willing to take the mick out of it a little bit, which mm. we're happy to do. We yeah. just like talking about books and I'm perfectly happy to point out when a plot point is frankly ludicrous. Yeah. So I think how this is going to run for, for this first bit, because we're, we're a little new to podcasting, is we're going to do a first season of 12 episodes. You and I have sort of loosely picked what the, uh, what the texts will be. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to recap the plot of each book to Daniel in, in a way that is sort of as goofy as possible to sort of take it off of its pedestal. And then we'll just talk about it for a little bit. Daniel, apart from being my, my frequent collaborator and, and colleague, uh, why have I brought you on this show? Why are you my co-host? Um, is this related to my misgivings toward plot? Uh, <laughs> yes, because well, I, I'm, yeah. I, love, I love a bit of gothic lit. I love a sensationalist plot. Daniel over here um, loves analyzing books, uh, but he, he, you've said to me a number of times, um, it'd be wonderful if it went for all that dreadful plot or something along those lines, which is just, I'm sorry, but that is the strangest take. You are, you are a professional in literature and you hate plot. And I just thought, that's amazing. Well, Who says that? I mean, there are plenty of novels out there that don't really. No, I know, I know. Well, but yeah, it, it is maybe a little outlandish or maybe, maybe I'm taking it slightly too far. I just thought Who doesn't like a good twist? I'd like a book with no plot, but with a twist. <laughs> is there anything like that out there? Uh, you know what? Write us in and tell us. So before every book, I'll give you some trigger warnings for stuff. And obviously it, it should really go without saying if I'm about to recap the entire book to you, there are going to be spoilers. So if, if this is a book where you would not like to know what happens, maybe press pause here. Uh, so what, what is our first book? Um, Little Known Work by Mary Shelley. Coles. Frankenstein. Thank you for the slowest delivery in the entire world. Or were you building up tension? Is that yeah, what you're doing? Exactly. Sorry. Well, yeah, of course. Put a drum roll in that. I was just thinking it'd be really great because it's our first episode. Wouldn't it be great to uh, subtitle this, It's Alive? Um, yes. That's not actually ever said in the book. So. No, yeah. Did, did you fancy talking about the different editions very briefly? Because we're using the 1831 edition. 
1818 is when the, the original version came out, right? Yeah, and so then she waited about 10 years and updated it slightly. So she, she didn't change a ton. Um, I think just some of the relationships, she polished up a bit of the writing, but it's, it's mostly the same. But just be careful if you are studying this, make sure you have the right edition. In terms of trigger warnings, I think most people will probably be okay with a lot of this. We can't obviously predict every trigger warning. Um, there is quite a bit of violence against women. There is a little bit of violence against children in this. There is uh, some vaguely incesty stuff that we are going to sort of pick on quite a bit. I, um, Mary Shelley was really, there's also stuff about abandonment because um, I don't know if you know, Mary Shelley was very uh, messed up about her mom having died in childbirth with her to the point it, it's, led to, it's led to a real sort of psychosexual thing in her um, where she actually boinked Shelley on her mother's physical grave because she was heavy metal but also needed therapy real bad. Yeah. All right, Daniel, are you ready? Are you ready for me to do plot at you? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, all right, buckle up, friend. We open in the, the sort of Arctic Circle mm. and there's this adventurer named Walton who is trying to find the Northwest Passage um, and his ship gets stuck as ships tend to do when they, when they try to find the Northwest Passage. He writes a lot of letters to his sister. So this whole book is told through frame letters to this guy's sister. And I just think, how are you going to mail them? Would it not make more sense to have this be sort of told through a journal? Yeah, I thought, but they did, that was the thing people did about them, right? They would write a whole yeah. series of letters and put them in a big bundle. And, and then ship them all off. So yeah. she's going to be overloaded with this whole story all, all at once. I just look at the most recent one, but then I hate plot. But I just <laughs> be like, what happened at the end? Great. <laughs> but my favorite thing about Walton as a character, and nobody ever remembers him, but he's, he's a really dynamic character because he just opens with basically going, I'm a giant loser and I have no friends and I'm real sad. And he's writing this all to his sister, like she doesn't know. But he writes, okay, so, so listen to this. He writes I to his sister, I desire the company of a man who could sympathize with me, whose eyes would reply to mine. You know how friends do. I use friends in quotation marks. Mm. So wait, first of all, you're going to cheers me because that's the first queer reading of this podcast. Yeah, massive top. Cheers! So um, there are going to be a lot more queer readings in this book. Uh, it's, not, it's not even a reading. It's pretty much just overt. It's also a good solid lot of uh, dollop of class contempt, isn't it, as well? Yes, yes. And the, and the captain of the ship and uh, the kind of... Because he's like... The, the, my fellowship makes a kind of subhuman grunts that, that I can't one, really that, talk to. That one sailor that he kind of has the hots for but can't quite bring himself to get up. But he's very clearly like, mm, this this guy over here, this bit of rough. Rough trade, yes. Yes, it's yeah. just, it's really interesting. So you guys just, even just read the framing devices because it's fascinating. If you're interested in sort of early 19th century sexuality and queerness, this is a, this book's got a lot for you. So anyway, the point is, ships get stuck. This guy's a loser. They're trapped in the ice. And one day they see this inexplicably in the middle of the ocean, a dog sled in the distance manned by this Andre the Giant looking sort of guy, this huge, huge man on this dog sled, which is super weird when you actually think about it, but whatever. The dogs are all chihuahuas as well. So, <laughs> so the next day as they're, they're freeing their ship from the ice, they discover a second dog sled that is trapped on this floating chunk of ice that's um, sort of bumping up against the ship. And there's a normal sized dude on it who is nearly dead. And so Walton's like, oh my God, you're, you're about to die. Please get on the ship. We'll, we'll take care of you. It's fine. 
And then this man really hilariously asks, and this, this is a direct quotation, my good sir, I would, but before I board your vessel, would you have the kindness to tell me whither you are bound? Like, he could just hail down a ship passing in the other direction. Like, this is the sort of Arctic Circle franchise of Uber mm. or something. <laughs> so this is such a weird reaction, but this guy has such a noble, you know, bearing. Countenance. Yes, noble countenance. That, that Walton falls head over penis in love with him instantly and moves him into his cabin and he takes care of him for weeks. And then he begins to, quote, love him like a brother despite not even knowing this guy's name. So he's there for two weeks. He won't say anything. Um, and I kind of get it. Like, Walton, we all kind of love the, the guy who treats us with glowering disdain, you know. But um, I, the joke I have written here, <laughs> my, my plot summary is, I have not seen this many men be this cold and isolated and gay since the thing. Walton's taking care of this guy who he is just completely instantly in love with. Um, and the guy won't really talk. He's just sort of brooding around the ship. And everyone's, all the sailors are like, can you tell us why you're here? Like, how did you, how did you get to be in this situation? And he won't say anything except to say, to seek the one who fled from me. So event, you know, it's not, nothing ominous there. I, like, have you guys never seen a horror movie? Kick this guy off your ship. He's not bringing you anything good. The, uh, the sailors eventually are like, Oh, hey, well, maybe we should mention this as relevant. And I'm thinking, what else was going on that you're not mentioning this? But it takes them a couple of weeks to say. Well, you think they were like looking at rain, rainfall readings and yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of but weather charts? They're just like, oh, um, we actually saw a dog sled before you manned by this huge guy. Is that anything? <laughs> Is that yeah. relevant? And so obviously this puts a you know, little hitch in this guy's giddy up. He gets all worked up about it. And so finally this guy sits down and tells him the, the proper narrative. And the guy is, of course, Victor Frankenstein. Um, and so we, we launch into the book properly now. And before we proceed into the book properly, because uh, this, is, this is actually a big chunk of the book, this framing narrative, um, but you know he's gonna launch into the, the bit that we all remember. But before we do that, I have a question for you, which is who are gonna cast as Frankenstein and the monster? Because I have a really, really good idea. I was wondering if you could like, you know, get industrial light and magic or one of those kind of, uh, there are other special effects people are available to actually reanimate a corpse. <laughs> we could reanimate Boris Karloff to reprise his role. That'd be a pretty pomo, wouldn't it? Yeah, pretty <laughs> metatextual. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, there you go. That's what my uh, choice is. Oh, well, that's a better idea than mine. Don't stage me on the podcast I invited you to. It's rude. No, okay, okay. Do you want to hear my idea, though? My idea. I'm all right. It, <laughs> no, no, go on. Yeah. So I was thinking we need we need somebody who can play a sort of teenage, wealthy, unlikable dirtbag, Timothée Chalamet. Yeah, oh, I got Timothée Chalamet. Would be really but, good. But, but, he would also play the monster. But no, he would also play the monster. But no, no, this is an unconventional sequel to Call Me by Your Name. Army Hammer, who's been in the press quite a lot for being maybe a literal monster, depending on what we mean by that. He seems to have very strange ideas about women and possibly cannibalism. We don't know, allegedly. It's all very confusing. But he's he's like 6'6 or whatever, isn't he? And so, but we need somebody with this weird sort of dynamic, the weird height discrepancy, the, who has a weird sexual tension. Because the monster's weirdly Apollonian, isn't he? He's kind of got these, he's kind of very... Uh... That's the thing, the monster is like- A beautiful, a beautiful man, but it's kind of weirdly yes. beautiful, isn't it? So Frankenstein opens the, the story properly, um, saying that he was born in Geneva to this really wealthy family. And once he was born, his parents doted on him in a way that totally won't give him a God complex in 20 years. And his parents stumble across this 
weird house that just like fosters vagabond children or whatever. And they just decide to take a little girl home with them because like adoption laws were really lax. So there's, a, there's kind of a dodgy ethnic reading here because of all the little girls in the home. They're like, we're taking the blonde one because we need a playmate stroke sister, maybe potentially wife for our son. Um, you know, we, we just need- That sounds good. That's what the, yeah, the, yeah, the adoption the, agents. Yeah, yeah that sounds like, probably normal. We yeah. need somebody to grow up to just be bodaciously hot in this brunette trash just will not do. So the girl's name is Elizabeth and just everyone simply loves her. I, they do this, uh, Mary Shelley, I, I, she writes so well, but I'm not entirely sure I love how she writes women. But th the rest of the story is dynamite. Like, she's such a compelling author. But I hate that Elizabeth is just the sort of, she's like the soul of sweetness and modesty. And everyone just adores her. There's a lot her. of that in these sorts of 19th like, century novels, isn't there? There's always some yeah. kind of like weirdly, inordinately angelic girl. Yeah, like it, like if, if a saint were also a playboy centerfold. You know, it's it's that sort of sort of thing. Because I mean, we are still operating within the remit of gothic literature here, and that's a very common thing. But it's it's almost like, call me crazy. Does this character exist just to be murdered for a lifelong vendetta? They're kind of setting that up. Like she doesn't need to do anything. She just needs to be there and have everyone love her, right? So Frankenstein, you know, eventually his parents have more kids. He grows up knowing that this sort of sister that he has now is also kind of slated to be his wife. Um, he gets really into science, and then he develops a very, very close friendship with a beautiful himbo named Clerval. Clerval is a terrible name! And they, they have a friendship that is, again, not even subtextual. They are, the, the way he talks about Clerval, they're, they're very much sort of, uh, sort of in love. And I just, I, the thing that I, I thought this time reading it round is my fixation on this frame narrative. And just remember that Walton, who is madly in love with Frankenstein, is hearing all of this. So he's back in the frame narrative, hearing Frankenstein go on and on about his beautiful boyfriend, Clerval. And I just imagine that he's, um, you know, just he's, how mad he is. There's just like one silent, furious tear trickling down his cheek as he's- Freezing on his cheek. Yeah, yeah, freezing on his cheek. <laughs> okay, so one day Victor, as this young man, is watching this big lightning storm and he thinks, Electricity, huh? God, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me sexually. Um, and it's obviously is that a direct quote? Going to yeah, that's a that's a direct quotation. That's not me. That's not me paraphrasing at cool. all. And then immediately after, um, his mother gets really sick and dies. And on her deathbed, she says a couple of things. She says like, you know, Elizabeth, do not do anything on my grave. <laughs> what she actually says is, you know, Elizabeth, my my daughter, or whatever, come closer. Um, firstly. It's my dying wish that you marry my son. Also, can you, could you maybe be a mother to my younger children? So you're going to be their sister, their sister-in-law, and their mother now, which is like nice and confusing and incesty. Mm. So his mother dies. He, the, his sort of engagement to Elizabeth is finalized, and then he goes off to university. So he has to tear himself away from his sister, fiance, and from his boyfriend, Clerval. So he goes to university to become a doctor, which is like both of us, but with probably more leeches and probes, I would think. Um, Slightly more. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's this whole subplot with um, the people that he meets at university. So there's some professors who he's, he's like, they're old and folkyish and they're out of date. And there are others who are like, Frankenstein, you're a genius. You're the cutting edge. And so he has, there's a whole thing there that we're not going to get into. And he starts to get this real inflated sense of self-worth and, and starts to think, because he's obsessed with galvanism, which is the sort of application of electricity, which is kind of this fairly new thing to 
you know, bodies both living and dead. Um, and he, uh, as it so often does, you know, teenage cockiness turns to grave robbing. Um, and he just sort of uh, thinks he can, he can assemble the sort of perfect human man, like the world's most disgusting Ikea flat pack. Yeah. So he says, he says- this So Elizabeth's not enough. Claire Val's not enough. I gotta make needs, the perfect yeah, man again. Exactly. Queer reading, yeah. my friend. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, um, but he says, and this is a direct quotation, I collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. And I'm like, dude, get a better hobby. So he's, yeah. he starts grave robbing. And I'm just saying, like, how are you bringing these bodies home? He, like, rents this, he rents this apartment flat in this lodging house. And I just think, are you, are you just carrying femurs and stuff upstairs? Like, he's, he's coming out of the, the sort of the cemetery with this, like, old-timey robber sack. Yeah. You know, but instead of a dollar sign on it, it's just got, like, a medical, medical waste symbol. Do you want to talk a little bit about what grave robbing is and why it was needed and why it was a huge anxiety and things like Burke and Hare? They needed cadavers to conduct anatomy classes at universities yeah. and, uh, in and, medi- and medical courses. Well wasn't there a, a taboo around yes. your body being yes so it was all like criminals and stuff but there weren't enough for all these medical students that they were chilling yep. out so people like Burke and Hare in was it in Edinburgh mm-hmm. stole the, well they, did, they, they didn't steal corpses in fact they're the famous grave robbers oh, they actually did people they in never robbed a grave they never ever robbed a grave they they realized that you could just they had a lodging house and they realized that you could just murder people cut out the middleman and, <laughs> and, and and sell bodies as fresh as possible and doctors were so hard up and so desperate to get corpses to be able to just like do their job well and understand the human body that they did not ask any questions no. I'll turn the blind eye it turned a blind eye um but Burke and Hare were in 1828 so I I think she i think one of the corrections is that she amped up the grave robbing a little bit they really it, right because that got in vogue yeah it? but yeah. It, was, it was obviously a problem before then hence why she was writing about it in 1818 but uh it, it became a much bigger thing through the century right he takes all of these sort of a uh, nasty body parts up to his attic garret his his room which is some i'm sorry but like a room full of body parts it's a kill room that is some ed gein shit i've ever heard one okay, so again i'm just i'm really fixated on walton in this because i'm really fixated on the queer reading but how does walton who is hearing this not stop him mm. at any point he's not he's not there going ah, you are you living where and doing what sorry well uh, yeah the this whole device is strange isn't it the mm. frame narrative thing that he's like how did you end up at the North Pole? He's like, well, I'll start with my birth. So he's doing all this stuff with body parts. And this is really interesting because Hollywood has led us to believe something very different, but we skip over the entire creation scene of the monster. So we know he's robbing graves. We know he's doing something with the body parts up in his attic. And then it basically just cuts straight to, uh, and then my creation opened its eyes. Frankenstein, who has designed this guy himself right he is he has specifically picked out the like the build-a-bear workshop <laughs> the grossest build-a-bear workshop yeah. i love yeah. that there's a lot of um academic work done about how there, there's a sort of non-white reading of frankenstein's monster because they talk constantly about the lustrous blackness of his hair and the sort of yellowness of his skin so I, I don't know to what extent Mary Shelley was directly alluding to this, but there, it's a, there's a lot of scholarship out there, so it's, it's worth uh, you guys checking out. But it's more just the kind of weird, uh, I think it's just the weird off beauty of it. Yes, like, yeah. Kind of... He's so beautiful and so, like he's so big and he's so perfect and he's so, but he's also dead and harrowing and there's... And everything's yeah. slightly out of 
I kind of got the impression that everything's yeah, this kind yeah. of big and these big wet eyes, and yeah. I got a real kind of. Uh, I really appreciated that sense of like horrific from the beautiful into the yes. sublime. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the point is, Frankenstein sees this hot, monstrous creation open his eyes. He freaks out. Not impressed. Not impressed. <laughs> not impressed. To say the very least. And he he. <laughs> He runs out. He runs out of his attic garret and leave, abandons this. And I, I saw this once in a tweet framed as an "Am I the asshole?" Reddit post, which I thought was really funny. That's funny. Yeah. It said something like, um, "Am I the asshole for leaving my nineteen male creation zero male alone in my <laughs> attic after running away from him with a face contorted in terror?" Which I thought, yeah, yeah. Uh, like this whole book would would do so well as a series of Am I the Asshole Reddit posts. Yeah. I think you could just, you could frame the whole thing yeah, that way. All romanticism it's, is kind of like this. Yeah. So he's, he runs out of his house and in, the, this is a book full of coincidence. He runs immediately into Clerval on the street, who is not there, his, his beautiful himbo boyfriend Clerval, who's like, hey, you look like hell. I have come to visit you, surprise. So he, he inexplicably decides to bring Clerval back to his attic kill room and is really worried that the monster is still there. And I'm like, my dude, where else would he be? Like, uh, the, the the logistics of this, you know, you don't expect him to have left. He's, he's a newborn for all intents and purposes. And even assuming the monster has left, his room is still full of, like, bone saws and mm. gore, you know? So don't, don't bring Clerval back there. I'm thinking about, he's an undergraduate, right? I'm thinking about room inspections. They come in like, like there you see a pile of pile of severed limbs. There's your monster kind of lying and mewling and puking. <laughs> is, that, is that a candle? <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed a candle, mate. It's fire risk. But so he he brings Crumble back and he's all nervous about the monster still being there. And he opens the door and the monster is gone. And so he's he's just overjoyed by this, not thinking. You know, like, where did he go? He instantly goes to, not my problem. So he and Clerval, I kid you not, they go and they have brunch. They they do avocado on toast in his room that's covered in pieces of, like, skin probably need that, and right, after, uh, rusty calipers. Uh, with no concern at all for his giant, like, infant monster baby let loose on the city. He, he instantly washes his hands of this, which is why people hate Frankenstein so much, because he will feel really worked up and really guilty for about five minutes before going, but I've done nothing wrong. So he, he, he's having this hysterically happy brunch with Clerval and works himself up so much that he faints right in the middle of it. And big dumb Clerval nurses him back to health for several weeks. And again, I would just like to cut back to Walton who has also just spent several weeks nursing this guy back to health. But poor Walton is getting nowhere near the sort of like soft bedroom eyes that Clerval is getting that he's describing. What kind story. of brunch did they have that made him faint? Or was it more the, no, no, the previous was, experience with the monster that made him he faint? He was so happy that the monster wasn't there that he worked himself into a state. Uh, I thought it was one of those like, like you know, those bottomless brunches that people go on, <laughs> you know, like on like uh, Hindus and things. I thought it was like one of those. So a month later, Frankenstein is getting better. He's properly shacked up with Clerval and a little love nest as he as he takes care of him. And he gets a letter from his dad saying, "Hey, buddy, haven't heard from you a while. Um, quick side note: your baby brother has been violently murdered. Do you want to you want to come home for a little bit, right? So what's what's happened is his little brother." was out playing one day he was wearing this sort of expensive necklace that had a miniature portrait of frankenstein's hot dead mom and everyone just assumes that he was killed for the piece of jewelry um and it was you know just robbery gone wrong really so frankenstein goes home for the funeral 
And he gets this crazy idea where he's like, what if my own rejected monster, who I don't even know if he's still alive, I don't know how he would know my name, let alone where my family lives in another city, what if he is mad at me and, and killed my baby brother for revenge? And the more he talks about or the more he thinks about it, the more he's convinced this is exactly what happened. It'd be good if it turned out it was like another, like a medical student at Geneva's monster. That, you know, <laughs> actually, a lot of people were making monsters around this time. And it was just a, it was like it was a, such a poetic justice. Thing. Or it's a strangers on a train situation. So he, um, he gets home and he's told that uh, Justine, the family's beloved servant, and also sort of a, a distant relation who has to come live with them, but they're like, but you're going to sleep in the barn and wait on us. Hoover up a bit, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's been discovered with the miniature necklace in her pocket and she's been arrested for the murder. And the whole family is like, well, that cannot be. We know her. Like, she has no motivation to do that. Like, what, she would not benefit at all from this. So everyone knows that um, she didn't do it, but the police are like, well, if she didn't, who did? And the only person who can say anything is Frankenstein, uh, but he is too embarrassed to tell people that he's like read from the Necronomicon and, and raised up something that he cannot put down. He's just, they're like, boy, would my face be red. So he lets her get hanged for the crime. This is a- it's, hey, you bring it back, honey. That's my question. I have this as a note where I was like, if he has the power over life and death, why wouldn't you just bring back your brother and bring back Justine? But they never address yeah. it. This is a plot hole in the story, but that's fine. So he goes on a lot of long, moody walks. His brother is dead. His cousin servant is dead. Because this is still sort of in the remit of romantic literature. So if you have a lot of feelings, you need to do nature about it. And so one day he's hiking up this mountain to absolve himself of guilt because everyone knows like the more shredded your abs, the purer your soul. And all of a sudden he sees this just this huge dude booking it up a mountain toward him. And I, I think this is a really thrilling passage. Because, During a thunderstorm. Because, well, I would be terrified. It's, it's written in a way that's, that's um, very exciting because you're just like, oh my God, no. And he, he instantly recognizes that it's the monster, right? And he yells at the monster. And this is a direct quotation. Devil. Do you dare approach me? Do you not fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect! Which is, coincidentally, my mother's first words to me. Yeah, right. um, So the monster who really didn't fall that far from the tree sort of escalates things immediately, saying, like, basically, first of all, you created me, so how about you check the attitude? And second of all, you owe me big time, so, quote... If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Which, again, coincidentally, were my first words to my mother. Yeah, it's uh, sad when you... It was annoying when your kids are more eloquent than you. But so, somehow this escalation works. Instead of, instead of them killing each other, it, it sort of turns into this icy mountaintop arbitration. And the monster, as, as you were saying, Daniel, like, the monster is very eloquent. Mm. And he, um, we're gonna, we're, I want to put a pin in that actually because the idea of how the monster speaks compared to how Hollywood portrays him to not speak is really interesting. But the, the monster is way better spoken than Frankenstein himself. So, so we enter another frame narrative now. So we're getting this through letters to Walton's sister that Walton is recounting from Frankenstein talking. Now the monster is talking, right? So we're, we're sort of divorced from this even further. And he speaks in just this, it's this, I can't really undersell this enough, or oversell this enough, rather. Um, it's this really dynamite passage about the 
sort of the the pain and, and sort of bewilderment of being created and then abandoned. So there's this, I think there's this really fascinating divide between the sort of intellectual asshattery of Frankenstein, who, I don't know, just talks about feeling guilty, but doesn't, it, it never really actually, you don't believe him and he never does anything about it to this very sort of real tender embodied sort of physical pain of the monster just just the pain of being alive Mm. and it's so moving i don't believe frankenstein for a minute which i think can be kind of off-putting initially where because he's not a believable narrator but then it all sort of comes into focus when when the monster starts narrating and you're like oh frankenstein's supposed to be a real pos a bit frosty yes so the monster says that he you know, woke up and he was really um, confused and bewildered and in pain. And he saw Frankenstein sort of stumble out of the room in, in horror. And he, he's you know, laying there naked in Frankenstein's attic and he grabs Frankenstein's cloak and sort of wanders out into the city, doesn't meet anybody. He stumbles his way out of the town into, into the country. And he eventually, I think he's supposed to have walked for like a really long way, like hundreds of miles, but he eventually stumbles onto this hut belonging to a blind peasant and his children. And the monster really quickly becomes obsessed with them. He, he like hides out outside their window, you know, in a bush or whatever, and just watches them. And he's like, oh, they look so sweet and happy. And he starts doing these odd chores for them whenever they're like, who hoofed in here? Well, no, like more, more like who chopped all of the firewood? I came out in the morning to chop, and we have a whole stack of firewood. Who um, hoovered the firewood? Um, and he's he's revealed to be very intelligent, so he teaches himself how to speak and how to read by just basically like a winter hiding outside, you know, listening, listening to them. Same way I did it. So once he learns how to read, and again, this is a very sort of convenient plot point, but he's able, he discovers in the cloak that he stole to cover his nudity uh, from Frankenstein's attic room, that Frankenstein this whole time had apparently been writing a journal about his quest to, to create a body and reanimate a man. So Frankenstein, uh, the monster is now, now able to read this. And uh, I guess I should just sort of go without saying, but like, please don't leave a detailed journal about your like felonies and Everyone makes one mistake, don't they? Yeah. Well, I've, I've written down step-by-step how I've created an eldritch yeah. horror. Like you don't need to write it down. I've got you a suit tailored to fit a seven foot creature. Left the, Left the diary in there. Left the, uh, yeah, exactly. Turns out he, he took it. So the, the monster reads this and is like, wow, my, my dad's a real D-bag. Uh, I'm going to disavow him Wrong entirely. Him. Oh, I'm sorry. Did D-bag offend you? Yeah. But so he, he disavows his father. He's like, the, these peasants who don't know I exist, they're my new family. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait till the kids are out of the house. And then I'm going to slowly reveal myself to the blind peasant because he can't see how hideous I am and we're going to become friends and he'll, he'll slowly, you know, let me in on, on the family. And so this goes, he does this and it goes well for about five minutes. And then the peasant's kids come home unexpectedly and they take one look at this giant sort of hulking monster, you know, leaning over their disabled dad. And they just, they start beating him with sticks till he goes away being like, go on, get Mm-hmm. get gone everywhere he goes after that he's just sort of relentlessly hounded by everyone who sees him who think he's sort of horrible and it's this whole sort of thing about like society makes us we learn how to be from society so this is the big turning point there's a lot of that isn't there? that kind of like you know Rousseauian kind of like the monster was pretty nice when he lived in the woods 
then he lived in society and that's what corrupted him yeah Yeah, so so this is the thing that corrupts him right so he decides from this like this this is the the turning point where you no longer have any sympathy for him where he's like okay these people they're too grown up they're never going to accept me i need to kidnap a child and make him my little buddy because he's too young to know that I'm horrifying. Keeps happening, doesn't it? People keep having this idea, don't of they? Of like, if I could just create the perfect yeah. companion for myself, yeah, mm-hmm. it never works. There was a guy that did that, wasn't there? From Birmingham, in fact. Beg pardon? You know, the Lunar Society of Birmingham. I am aware of yeah, it. 18th century. Uh, one of them, I can't remember his name now, uh, adopted two girls and was like, I'm going to create these into my, well, what they do here. I'm going to make these ideal marriageable material. Ew, yeah, no. Yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Grooming them for himself? Yeah. Ew. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And we need two in case I mess up one or whatever. Yeah, well, one of them was system. like, I'm not having any of this. It really, like, caked off. And I, I can't remember now what happened. Great. So Daniel's told us a very depressing story with no conclusion. <laughs> Sorry. Um, right. So he he's like, it's time to kidnap a kid and mold him to love me. And so he stumbles across this little boy. Uh, and coincidentally, he tried, when he tries to get out, and the kid's like, "My dad's a Frankenstein, and he's an important man, and you're gonna, mm. you're gonna be sorry." Um, and and he's like, "What? This is first of all Frankenstein, you say? Interesting." But and, but secondly, he's like, "This is this is not going to plan." And I was like, "Have you? The premise of your plan is is wrong in the first place. Have you ever met a nine year old? They are the meanest." People in the world, if you're looking for somebody to love you unconditionally, don't go for a like a kid in that age range. But so the the kid starts kicking off and screaming. The monster freaks out, accidentally strangles him in an attempt to just keep him quiet. And he's like, "Oh no, I've just I've murdered a little boy." Um. So, but he's also like, "But coincidentally, this is my uncle, I guess." Mm. And so he sees a miniature portrait around the boy's neck and he starts perving on it real bad. And I'm like, first of all, that is your grandmother. Show some respect. But he he stumbles onto the Frankenstein's property and he sees um, Justine sleeping sort of in one of the outbuildings. because she's not, she's not allowed in the real house. She's one of the pores who's mm, not allowed yeah. in. And he starts thinking she's really hot. I guess this is the, the spate of the novel where he goes through puberty yeah, like, I never really thought about that, the, the idea of the monster exhibiting yeah, but developmental he, he gets stuff. all hot and bothered over Justine sleeping, and he contemplates kidnapping her to be his wife, but then he realizes that if she wakes up, she's probably going to be, you know, scared by how, you know, ugly he is, and she'll start screaming. And he takes this to mean that she basically deserves to die, because a sleeping woman has hypothetically hurt his feelings so he might as well plant the necklace on her so she gets caught and convicted of murdering the small boy he's just murdered. Which, first of all, is a very sort of um, sophisticated understanding of the socio-legal system for a six-month-old baby man who's lived in a bush most of this time. Mm, yeah. It's, it's, also, it's also some military-grade incel BS. And I, this is, again, where you lose most of the... He's a bit of a chad as well, isn't he? That's the weird thing. The monster is almost chad material, but yeah. somehow... Uh... <laughs> He plants the necklace on Justine, and that brings us up to the present day, and now the Frankenstein, Frankenstein and the monster are all caught up, and it's time to enter the third act of this novel. So the monster tells him, if you make me a wife, you and I are going to be all square. The wife and I will move to South America or something where there are <laughs> no people, he seems to think. But basically, yeah, just, I want a companion, we'll go away, we won't trouble anyone, and there's a lot of yes, no, yes, no over the situation until eventually Frankenstein agrees. He's like, fine, just, just leave me alone. 
So Frankenstein goes home and he tries to work up the courage to start building the monster bride, but he gets really distracted when his family says, we have this gruesome double tragedy. Do you know what we need right now? A wedding. This is, this is the perfect time for you to marry your sister fiance. So they start planning the marriage and like a, all, all super hetero dudes at the prospect of marrying this incredibly beautiful woman, he freaks out and runs straight into the arms of his boyfriend, Clerval. So they go, they go on this extended romantic holiday. Uh, and I, I just reiterate that in the frame narrative, Walton must be trying so hard not to react. He's like gonna vibrate the ship loose out of the, out of its ice prison. So um, he and Clerval, they, they go all around the continent, but they go up to Scotland because the Orkneys are for lovers. <laughs> and whenever Clerval is off doing like a, a whiskey tasting or I don't know what people did in 1818 for tourism. Jumper the, trying on. Jumper trying on. That's sweater for our American listeners. I was thinking like the Culloden experience. Did they have a... Yeah, like, I think that was still a point back then, to be honest. So whenever Clerval is out of the house, basically, uh, Frankenstein has this sort of outbuilding where he starts to build the... I almost said corpse bride, but that's a different thing. The, uh, the, the monster bride. And he knows that the monster has probably followed them up to Scotland to make sure that he's, he's good on his promise. So Frankenstein makes half of the bride before he gets real buyer's remorse. And instead of just not reanimating her, right? You've built half of her. You could just not do anything further. Instead, no, he has to take, he, he chooses violence. Mm. And he, he smashes up her corpse with, you know, the monster um, lurking outside the window. like yeah, back, Fresh back from his own whiskey tasting. Yeah, like, like Distillery like, tour. He's out there like a little matchstick girl going, oh, but wait. So the monster sees him, you know, sort of uh, very violently destroying this poor woman or women. I don't know how many body parts we're dealing here with. Yeah, that's an interesting pronoun question about monsters yeah yeah it is but he so the monster bursts into the room and says quote if you are determined to condemn me to loneliness then i am determined to be with you on your wedding night which considering the queer and incest readings in this i i think frankenstein must be going oh great <laughs> don't threaten me with a good time <laughs> but um uh, do, do you wonder though i mean obviously the monster means that in the sort of murderous way of like well you've taken my bride from me i'm going to take your bride from you but also Maybe maybe they should have tried the, the queer reading element. Maybe uh, that would have solved both their problems. Just, Frankenstein, a love story. Just French kiss each other a little bit. See how it goes. Maybe maybe, maybe you'd like it. But this is, yeah. you guys should know, if we're going to do podcasting, you should know that this is just how I read books. So I want nothing more in life than for characters to just kiss each other. So when I read, just imagine I'm mentally playing with Barbies and smashing their faces up against each other. Okay. That's all yeah. I'm doing. New school of thought. So um, even though he's threatened Elizabeth and, and Frankenstein thinks like, okay, well, that's the thing I really have to watch out for. He's surprised to discover that the monster then ices Clerval. Clerval, mm, buddy, my little yeah. buddy. We'll, we'll see he's coming he... back at his tam shanta from the, uh, one of those gift yeah. shops with his like, yeah. shortbread. Yeah, exactly. Just, right. Look what I got this guy. Hey. Uh. With, um, with Clerval dead, there's nothing keeping Frankenstein from marrying Elizabeth. So he, he heads home. For his wedding. Would you be, yeah, you would just be like that, wouldn't you? And so he sits Elizabeth down and he says, honey, I have a horrible secret about our wedding night, but I'm only going to reveal it to you the day after our wedding. 
much good may it do you. You're not going to have any, you're not going to be able to make an informed choice before then. And I got to be honest, there's probably, quote, no happiness left for us on this earth. She's like, cool. Well, yeah, uh, instead of instead of her backing slowly away to the sound of flapping red flags. Getting a prenup. She, she, at the very least. Yeah, she, she just has a real sort of, um, I can fix him energy. And uh. she, she doubles down and picks a wedding date. And I'm just thinking, excuse me, Clerval's body is barely cold. So he and Elizabeth get married and they go on their honeymoon. And then, Daniel, then... On their, honey, on their wedding night, instead of boinking like well-adjusted people, Frankenstein takes a gun and he goes and patrols the hallways. This guy will do anything to keep from having sex with his wife, right? And so obviously Elizabeth's left alone, which is like catnip for monsters. The monster sneaks in through a window because this guy does not know how to use a door and he kills Elizabeth. Um, you know, Rip Elizabeth, you weren't given that much to do, so we hardly knew you. Why wouldn't... It's weird that he thought like he took it upon himself. Like I wouldn't really trust some Swiss intellectual to. I mean, they're famously quite peaceable people, aren't they? <laughs> to, they to provide guard. the Vatican security. Oh, okay, yeah. I suppose in that sense, the Swiss guard. Yeah. Has a monster ever killed a pope? I believe that to our medieval scholars amongst us. Yeah. Please write in. Yeah. Has a monster ever killed a pope? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frankenstein, you know, swears revenge because women exist kind of to just be um, motivation for men in this. So this begins his whole quest of chasing the monster all over the world. One thing leads to another, dog sled. The, narr the narrative at this point, we're all caught up. The narrative goes back to Walton who wastes no time. To, like, like we haven't just been listening to the same story. Walton instantly is like, oh, and my dear sister, Frankenstein's eyes were so fine and so whatever, and I was like, my my guy, please play. Pay attention. Um, it's not a plot guy. It's not, not a plot guy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's kindred spirit. Just Frankenstein says, Walton, you were searching for the Northwest Passage for you. You want to make your impact on the world and on science. You're not really thinking about the human cost. Don't do what I did. Also, I kind of want you to abandon your own quest because I'm probably going to die in pursuit of this monster and I need you to avenge me and like make sure he's dead. You know, so it's again, everything revolves around Frankenstein, right? It's just he's a selfish twat. So Walton begs Frankenstein not to keep pursuing this journey. And he basically overtly says, like, I love you, right? Um, and <laughs> he confesses this. And Frankenstein says, quote, when you speak of new ties and fresh affections, Think you that any can replace those who are gone? Can any man be to me as Clerval was, or any woman another Elizabeth? Which is so harsh. Like, Frankenstein's just emotionally ashing a cigarette all over this guy after he saved his life. And then he lies down and dies. That's how much he does not want to date Walton, is that he dies to get out of it. So the monster, who's still up in the sort of vicinity, seems to have a sixth sense for all things. Frankenstein senses that he's died or whatever, sneaks aboard the ship, again, I think through like a window or some, you know, side pass. They call them portholes on boats, don't they? Oh, excuse me. Oh, I forgot Daniel's in the Merchant Marine. And mm. he's, he's... Just a bit of nautical language. Sorry. Oh, forgive me. I'm so sorry. It's all right. Uh, the, the monster sneaks aboard, sits with Frankenstein's corpse for a little bit. Walton comes in and is like, oh my God, you're real. The monster's like... I, I forgive him for being awful. You know, that now that my enemy is dead, I'm more miserable than ever. I'm going to go out into the Arctic Circle, make sure that I die so no one will ever know that I was even alive. My whole life was like a blight on humanity. And <laughs> Walter must be there like, I'm sure glad I've written to my sister about no. you. Like no one will ever know. Oops. 
and Walton turns the ship around and goes home, the end. I think the moral I've taken away is that this is about a, it's a book about a man who wanted to be God but just couldn't quite admit, commit to it. And I guess if you're going to part the veil between life and death, just just have a good time with it. You can't you can't half acidly do that, right? So that's the end of the book. Um, did that recap work? I entered a fugue state. So Daniel, does this make you want to read the book more? Did this take it off its shelf, or was this just a strange folly you do for uh, both of us? Kind of like the book. You know, it's it's given me definitely given me a greater insight into the uh, mm -hmm. experience of Frankenstein and indeed of his monster. So uh, that's I'm not going to ask you which one of us. Is <laughs> well, exactly. So that's that's a that's an insight certainly. Uh, well, I was thinking about providing maybe a little bit of advice to people encountering books for the first time. We'll see if we can collect this on our website. Uh, the advice that I sort of had is. Um, if you are nervous about reading classic lit, be really patient with yourself and give yourself, give, give yourself a few chapters, give yourself at least 20 or 30 pages. You will get used to it. It's going to seem difficult at first. Cause I, I started reading this and I was like, oh my God, the writing style, I hate it. Within 10 pages, I was, I was really hooked, but it takes sometimes a little bit to get used to it. So please give yourself the, the gift of taking it slowly and getting acclimatized to the writing style. Yeah. Nose to the grindstone. That's my kind of. You just. Like, I'm not enjoying it, but I'll get there. Press on, you know. Uh, just I've never, I've never really enjoyed a book, but <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, you're an academic. Actually, I just really like secondhand bookshops, and I thought I might as well start reading some of these. But books. you hate everything that it contains. Yeah, I'm more just a collector. So for for next time, uh, do do we want to reveal what book we're going to do next time around, or should we leave it as a surprise? Uh, always leave them wanting more. Great. That's they've they've already had too much. You should have yeah. told me that at okay. the beginning. I wasn't wanting less. <laughs> Mission accomplished. So, uh, yeah, please write into our email or um, tweet us and you, uh, tell us tell us what classic lit has sort of infuriated you the most, which, which protagonist is just the absolute worst in literature, if there's somebody who can top Frankenstein. You could frankly um, write in with any question if we, you want to do an Agony Aunt style. Uh, write in and ask Daniel about all of your relationship problems or um, your medical problems as well. He's a, he's a doctor now, so he can send him pictures of your rashes. He'll, he'll be able to diagnose yeah. you. Okay, do we need to sign off? Sure. Do you have a, do you have a, you know, you stay classy San Diego style outro? Uh... Just, thanks. Have an Abby and Daniel day. Uh, Smashed it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Center for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. <laughs>